You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. I really do think that, yes, how we are to one another engages the issue of power, of hierarchy, of prominence, of sexuality, of race, of class, all those things that have to be spoken together that can never be separated. with you here, taking you through till midday today with another edition of Smart Arts. Big thanks, as always, to the Breakfasters. They'll be back with you tomorrow morning between 6 and 9. On the show today, we've got a range of art forms to talk about. We've got paste-up photojournalism, courtesy of French outfit Disturb, who are in town for an exhibition at Ruffian Gallery in Footscray, and also to run some workshops at the uh, Footscray Community Art Centre. Plus, we've got our Art Attack segment with Ace and Ty. They'll be reviewing a new exhibition and uh, chatting, no doubt, about a couple of other shows opening around town. We're going to find out about Barking Spider Visual Theatre's new show, or shows, I should say, Psychopomp and Seething, two short works being presented at the La Mama Courthouse. We're going to talk about classical music a little bit on the show today. Not something I chat about a lot on Smart Arts, or indeed uh, not something we chat about a lot on Triple R. But there's a marathon coming up of Brahms, presented by 3MBS's chair, Chris Howlett, uh, at the Hawthorne Arts Centre. So, uh, yeah, fellow community radio station, let's find out what Chris is up to and what Brahms is all about and why. Why a Brahms marathon? I'm intrigued. Uh, we're going to find out about the artist-run festival Love City, its latest incarnation, Love City 2 of Time and Country, which is on, on the 27th of February at Testing Grounds behind the Art Centre. Plus, last night, uh, Lisa Daniel launched the 25th Melbourne Queer Film Festival program. It's her final program after many years, so Lisa will join us to talk us through some of the highlights of the program and, and to tell us why the Queer Film Festival is still in important. Uh, And then more cinema at 11.30. Cerise Howard will be swinging by to review some current film releases. So all that and more on the show today. Hope you can stick around. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. Now, we live in an age in which pretty much everybody has access to a camera. You carry a camera around in your pocket uh, or in your handbag, and that 
is great in some ways, means we all document our lives, but it also means that photography as an art form has been devalued. Uh, it's very, very easy for anyone to take a photo. Consequently, the meaning behind a good photo sometimes gets lost. This can be a challenge not only for, for artists, but particularly for photojournalists, whose work is increasingly devalued and often sometimes republished without uh, appropriate references, without the artists being credited or even paid. So that's an issue, but it also means that we, the public, are not always getting access to good photojournalism in a range of forms and styles. A group in France called Disturb are doing something about that, uh, and their founders join me now in the studio. Pierre Dirgeman and Benjamin Gerret, welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. So... As photojournalists, uh, one of the things that you have done to expose people to your work um, is instead of trying to find it somewhere for it to be published, you've been pasting it up on walls, so going direct to the public. Benjamin, tell us why you've decided to do that. Uh, why we decided to do that? Because uh, we are both uh, photojournalists and uh, it was uh, something that we could do and we realized it very quickly when uh, Pierre uh, firstly pasted up some of his picture, uh, coming back from a reportage in Africa. He wanted to, to show his work and he wanted to show what he had seen uh, weeks ago or days ago. And then we quickly realized that it was uh, something... Uh, necessary to do now with the press crisis with uh, uh, the audience that uh, don't trust not so much a magazine anymore or newspaper anymore they go on internet they go to look for themselves but we have to go and engage our audience it was very very easy to make it in the street and we have a very good uh, reaction so we started like this yeah um pierre what were those first photos that you pasted up in the streets um, Can I get you to move a bit closer to the microphone? Thanks. We, um, we began by pasting uh, pictures from uh, Africa that I did in Central African Republic a year ago in March. And since then we have passed more than 250 posters around the, around the world from Paris to Sarajevo, New York, uh, today Melbourne. So, uh, yes, it's... a. Uh, a lot of pictures. Now, one of the challenges of working in this way is that you don't have the mass market audience that you would have if the photographs were published, say, in, in Time magazine or in a major newspaper. But do, do you think that's being balanced out then by kind of finding the right people to expose them to, people on the streets who will learn perhaps more from seeing the photographs on the street than a larger audience might by glancing at one single photo out of context you know, in a newspaper? I, first, I, I think that we have many problems in the press today. First of all is that people don't believe in what we say. So mostly we have all the time to uh, be sure that our pro uh, what we will say will be um, very strong. Um, in the street we are reaching much more audience than a magazine. Sometimes when we passed in uh, places where there is a lot of uh, traffic, a lot of people can see the picture, even more than people, uh, more than what uh, the number of people that buy magazines. But um, 
It's also a different audience because someone who is uh, buying a magazine, buy the magazine to read or to look at the pictures. Someone in the street will be more like um, he will have the contact to the picture even if he doesn't want to uh, to know about uh, what's going on. Wh what we wanted to do to do in the street was really to. Um, let the people discover uh, stories that they won't be access or they won't be interested to look at. So in some ways you're breaking people out of the routine of their daily lives by confronting them with, exactly. with facts and stories and images from different sides of the world, from, from conflicts that you think the media should be looking at but the media are, are ignoring. If I don't know if the media is ignoring, uh, especially here I have the feeling that people are not really open to what's going on around the world because, um, I don't know, I, I, I couldn't uh, feel uh, like in Europe we have a lot of interest for uh, foreign news, maybe here in Australia less, but um, yeah, it's... Yes, it's open. Uh it, it, it concerns everyone. Uh, we believe at the sub that it's uh, everyone should be aware of what's happening in the world. Everyone should be aware of who is in conflict with who. Uh, it's part of history and it affects us in many ways in today's world. So uh, we we made a quick look at the market at the beginning when we started this sub and we saw that there was a paradox. There's less and less pictures of uh, international news in news paper and magazine means maybe the audience uh, doesn't want to see it but we don't believe in that and in the same time there is more and more photojournalists all over the world that produce very high quality reports and they deserve to be seen they deserve to be published broadcast so this is a another solution a new solution in many ways it seems that the, to me that the work you're doing with Disturb is getting back to the original roots of photojournalism, which used to be very much a, um, almost a, a transgressive form of reportage. Uh, a, a series of strong images could shock a reader awake and out of complacency. Mm -hmm. uh, and it does seem now that with what you're doing, by putting these images in the public domain, kind of yes, we're, we've all seen the occasional shocking image on Facebook, but you can just walk away from it click onto the next screen, whatever. Putting images on a street really does seem to be um, awakening people, perhaps, in a, in a different way. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Pierre, Pierre will tell you he has experience with uh, with kids, and we we are uh, seeing many kids uh, uh, in different occasions talking about our jobs, and uh, the answers are quite uh, sometimes uh, disturbing for us. So uh, maybe Pierre can tell. No, uh, we, first, we, we don't try to shock in the street. It's more to inform with uh, strong pictures, but not necessarily shocking pictures. Um, we work a lot we're on pedagogic programs for schools, and um, so we are very aware of not uh, of always posting pictures that will be uh, uh, understandable and lookable by everybody. You know, so yes, it, it's shocking, but uh, we also we are also going back to the roots of uh, a print picture. People today look at pictures only on the internet, uh, mostly on their computer or on the screen on their iPhone. And um, to get back the paper is also something that people uh, really like. 
And we do, sorry, we, we, we do put a caption on every poster. Uh, that means that for us, uh, photojournalists always publish or send or copy a picture with a caption. And it's important for everyone to understand that uh, you, you need to know who took the picture. You need to know who was in the picture, where was it, when it was taken. Every, every information like this is so important. And sometimes with Facebook, Instagram, we don't see who's the author of the picture, we don't see where is it, and we have a lot of different interpretations. That's not what we do, and we need to tell those people that a uh, photojournalist is uh, ruled by uh, many, uh, many things that we can talk about that we want to tell others. Where are some of the places uh, that you have been working, that you've been documenting through your photojournalism to tell stories and show people images that they might not otherwise have seen? I know you've been in, uh, I think, um, in Kiev. Uh, you've been uh, in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Where else? Uh, I worked a lot in Palestine and Israel for many years. Afghanistan, um, Georgia during the war with the Russians. And then, yes, uh, Haiti, uh, Libya, and Tunisia during the Arab Revolution, also Egypt. I spent some time in the Central African Republic. So Mm -hmm. it's um, countries where it's it's, uh, already difficult to work. So if you don't have someone who supports your work, it's almost impossible because it's uh, very expensive places to work. I, I I have good luck because I'm working... Uh, sometimes offer the New York Times offer Paris Match magazine with a French magazine with uh, still sending photographers um, to this kind of places but uh, yes if you are a freelance and you don't have someone who back you it's uh, very hard now, while you're here in Melbourne, you've been you're presenting work uh, as part of Photo Book Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an exhibition at Ruffian Gallery, 361 yes. Barclay Street so in Footscray, uh, and that's a paste-up exhibition that is showing now until the 12th of March. And the gallery is only open at limited hours, but I understand that your work is on display uh, via the front window, so it's open to the public uh, 24 hours a day. Yes, and also we have also been uh, pasting more than 20 or 25 pictures inside the city. Uh, you can find the, the spots on the on internet by going to disturb.com, disturb with a Y. On a smartphone, with your smartphone. Yeah. And then you have a big map where you can see... Uh, all the best things. Um, and you're also running uh, a masterclass at Footscray Community Arts Centre while yes, you're here. Yes, and we also have a lecture at 4pm uh, on Sunday at the Baron Said for Photobook Melbourne. Um, and there is also the um, closing of uh, our coming uh, in the gallery on Tuesday, I think, or Monday. On Monday, Monday. Monday, Monday yeah. evening. So if you'd like more details, uh, you can go to ruffiangallery.com for mm-hmm. more information about Disturb's work that's showing there. For more information about Photo Book Melbourne, a 10-day festival featuring exhibitions, talks and workshops, uh, you can go to photobookmelbourne.org. Um, you can also, of course, go to Disturb's website uh, for more information. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook. And so very connected. Yes. Uh, and as I said, uh, the workshops that you're running 
at Footscray Community Arts Centre, uh, or in conjunction with Footscray Community Arts Centre. Uh, uh, one of the great things about that that you've made five free workshops available to asylum seekers and refugees, so uh, which hopefully means they can then document their stories further, exactly. uh, and more people can learn from that. So, how important is it to both of you to to make sure that when uh, you visit a different city as part of Disturbed, that you leave a legacy behind, that you're not just coming in, showing work and moving on, but you're helping enact change through your visits? Well, uh, again, it's, um, it's the basics of uh, Disturb is to connect and create a community of uh, photojournalists and of people who will, who will help, up, help us to continue this project. So, uh, yes, we are also, again, working a lot with uh, kids and educational programs. So, yes, the, the way of um, transmission and giving to the people uh, something is very important to us, of course. So if we can make a call today, we are looking for photojournalists, for local photojournalists, Australian photojournalists. We would like to find a team. We would like to find people ready to be involved in Disturb. It's uh, really having fun. We are pasting a lot of nice pictures. So once uh, we will be back in France, we wish uh, to have a team that we will be able to receive some prints and take care of the pasting. So if someone hears... How do they get in touch with you if they would like to be involved? They can connect uh, with us uh, on Facebook, uh, through our web uh, website. There is so many ways they can uh, contact us. Well, hopefully I know a couple of people listening who I think will be very interested. So, Pierre, Benjamin, thank you very much for joining us here much. at Triple R today. Thank you very much. is our fortnightly visual art review segment and I'm joined in the studio once again by Ty Snaith. Good morning, Ty. Good morning, Richard. And Ace Wagstaff. Hello. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm very well, very well. Happy Year of the Goat to you both. Oh, I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm a goat, so it's my year. Oh, are you? Yes. Well, I, the question is, is it Year of the Goat, Year of the Sheep or Year of the Ram? It could be all three. Mm. Uh, it seems to vary between Japanese, uh, Chinese. I think, I like I think it's long, as long as you're cloven hoofed and, uh, and horned. And and horns, yeah. yeah, a little bit beardy, a little, yeah, bit, beardy. A little bit beardy. <laughs> yeah. and, um, no, not much beard action. I going do realise that if it's your year, you have to wear red this year. Is that right? You do, yeah. Oh. To, to I really don't cash in on the I don't maximum own amount any of luck. Well, you better start oh, reading up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just buy some leftover on sale, you know, Santa costumes. Yes, yeah. Santa costumes. Scary, <laughs> terrifying, in fact. <laughs> so, um, I'm guessing you two have been out and about looking at exhibitions. Mm. I have. Oh, yeah. I did so in Perth, though. Did you? So, yeah. Oh, that's very exotic. <laughs> yes, oh. I thought so. <laughs> yeah, I went over to Perth for the uh, opening weekend of Perth festival oh, so cool. nice. didn't get a chance to see all of the exhibitions I wanted because oh, what, were the, what were your top picks of well, what you saw? There was um, an Icelandic artist mm. exhibiting uh, but his works were either in Fremantle uh, outside of Central Perth mm. or at uh, one of the universities which was also a bit of a drive so I didn't yep. get to that but I did get to see some work by a great Japanese artist whose name escapes me temporarily but I also wandered around very happily inside the uh, Western Australian uh, gallery which mm, I've not nice. been to before mm. and some beautiful, beautiful work, including a fantastic and quite 
horrifying piece uh, by Lynn Onus, uh, Marilinga, uh, which really yeah. powerful sculpture that I'd not seen before. So it's always yeah, fun it's visiting another city's here. gallery. It is. It is very, especially in this country, we've got some goodies in interstate <sighs> and here. I mean, we really yeah. don't need to leave Melbourne, do we? <laughs> no, but it, it is good to get out of Melbourne. <laughs> it it is. is. But we didn't this time. We went to the heart of Melbourne, the Paris mm. end of Collins Street. Yep. Um, right next to Paris End Cafe, I noticed. There's actually a cafe called Paris End Cafe. Shush. <laughs> and do you now know, Melbourne's just taken the mickey. Do you know why it's called bit. the Paris End? Uh, no. no. I'm not quite sure either, but I suspect it's because it's where the I fashion just, trade used yeah, to be based. Well, it used to be the Louvre, that really famous, um, that little fashion shop at the top at the top of Collins Street called the Louvre. Remember that? Oh, yeah. I don't know whether that came before the, the term Paris end of Collins Street suspect, or after. I know the, the rag trade used to be based yeah. in Flinders Lane, yeah, so it okay. makes sense that then the high-end fashion was well, just a block over the... in Collins Street. So I'm assuming that's where I the... I think that's why, because <laughs> anyway, there's all those high-end fashion. Anyway. We, we should talk about art, not the, the, so, the, the, the where various street nicknames have We obviously haven't, haven't caught up in the last two weeks, we here went, we are just... That's right. We went to Sarah Scout, which is that end of Collins Street. It's number 12. Collins Street, and it's sort of on the first floor, Sarah Scout Gallery. It's, it's very, very close to Spring Street, so mm, if you're looking for directions on, on Collins Street, it's best to start from that end. It's true. Uh, and there's a show there that is quite interesting. It's a collaborative a series of works between Sharon, Sharon Goodwin you got it. <laughs> and Irene, how do you pronounce Irene's surname? Hannenberg. Hannenberg. I'd, I'd like to think. And they're all very, they're all works on paper, mm. and they're all pretty much ink and pencil, and that's it. There's no other mediums used, is there? No, and no, and I think the, you make that sound really illustrative, you know. Well, it's, it's, it's quite illustrative. It is quite illustrative, but. The illustrative is not, not a dirty pictorial. word, Ace. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, and this is a perfect show that it is. exemplifies that, because yeah. they have embraced this. Uh, quite a lot of illustrative traditions and tropes and even symbols from Roman times or mm. ancient times or medieval times. Medieval, especially. Uh, and even even Baroque, would I be right in saying? Or what is I the libertine pattern No, yeah, from? I definitely think some of the forms and, and mm. uh, pictorial gestures in the works are Baroque. Mm. But, um, but it is... Very contemporary in the same way. <laughs> Very contemporary. So. Do you want to open about your favourite one? Mm, my favourite one. There's, well, we should say that the process... I mean, I'm not 100% sure mm. on who started which work first. So that is something that I'm unclear about. No one could tell me in the gallery, but I assume they had some kind of system where one artist started, the next person yeah. added, and whether or not that went back and forth, I'm not 100% Well, their 100% collaboration sure. um, started a while ago where they both have works, had yeah. works that they didn't couldn't or didn't yeah. finish, so yeah. they passed them on to the other person and they then in turn added their own and passed them back. Which is a very playful exchange because it mm. opens up to sort of happy accidents or chance or mistakes and also that, I mean, if anyone's... I've done a few of these collaborations before and it's really fun because you can't control your destiny. That's right. Yeah, there's always these uncertain elements that get added that you, you have to yes. then respond to rather than conduct or compose from the beginning. Yeah, I think my favourite work is uh, one of the larger works in the front room, which is this kind of big, organic, romantic spill of ink in the middle. That's yep. all. It's not an actual spill, but it looks like little... It, it, it feels like a spill, but it's all it's little fragments drawn of fragments of organic yeah. shapes. And then I assume 
um, Sharon yep. has then added to that with all these little kind of line drawings of people and horses uh, with, yes. and uh, knights and sort of dragons and people with tethered ropes to the organic spill thing. It's like this absurd it's garden like, of earthly delights. Yeah, but it's almost yep. like they're all centred or around this thing in the middle, which made which has such a lovely kind of literal translation to the process of art too. Mm. Where we, we create all these little things in our brain that try to tether it and we try to shape it and we try to mould it and yeah, yet it is still it this big... It. Yeah, and still there is this big, big kind of sprawling romantic mess in the middle, which I, I love that work. That's an excellent point because a lot of these works as well, as we were saying earlier, being illustrative and being you know visually amazing to look mm. at, they're also really poetic and also really conceptual, talking about the nature of drawing and the nature of art. Yeah. Um, and the nature of production, especially when you consider that they're collaborative works. Mm. Um, yeah, these. I, I'll go back to that collaborative bit again because these have kind of been collaborated with the in mind that they're going to be drawn on by the other person. Yeah. So they've been a little bit prior planned. There is a bit of that. Yeah. But what I love about them is that they, they come off so fine and they're, they're so well composed and kind of evenly paced and uh, composition is mm. really well balanced despite being in, in many, all of the works, non-symmetrical. But also in some of them I found it both frustrating and satisfying, which is unusual, that I couldn't tell. That there was somewhere I really tried oh, and I squinted and I looked and in some ways I think is that a fault or is that a beauty? I no, mean, I, I think that's definitely like a strength because yeah. in so many of them that tension but that push pull between kind of giving to who? the viewer and taking away yeah. is, and it's um, almost like is really hard. considered. This is our private thing. You, don't know. Yeah, you just absolutely. get to look at the end thing. You get to look at yep. the beautiful picture but you don't know what we did in our <laughs> studio. You don't know what conversation we had while we were doing it. I love that it infers that relationship too. And because their styles are so similar I think that oh. helps as well like there's mm. there's a real definite kind of blurring of the line in between one artist and the other mm. you know anybody who was visiting the gallery for the first time with no background information would you know would assume that it was one artist well, composing you could the works easily think that I mean oh, absolutely you'd be a bit mm, why is it a little bit looser here or why is it yeah. really tight here or why is this person this mm. one's all about organic stuff this one's all about you know um medieval things but if you i mean if any of this interests you just go in and have a look because yeah. listening to us is not really <laughs> where enough. should people go to have a look so it's the victor horsley chambers uh suite 15 level 1 12 collins street and as we, as we said before definitely approach from the spring street sarah um, scout gallery and yeah sarah scout presents and it's sharon goodwin and irene hannenberg and their exhibition zylvester oh and funnily enough zylvester i mean in the press release they mentioned that it's this woman that they thought i don't know where <laughs> that comes from. So I googled Sylvester <laughs> thinking quite late at night, thinking maybe I'll find some more things about this strange word Sylvester yep. and I found some horse some French warm blood horse and if you know me, I, I love horses and I of course, instead of just going, oh that's not it, I went, who is this horse? <laughs> and so then I spent at least a good hour watching dressage videos. Uh, <laughs> as you, as, on, as you do. On as you do. <laughs> so uh, Sarah, a beautiful horse. The website to go to <laughs> If you would like to know more about the exhibition that Ace and I have been talking about, sarahscoutpresents.com, and uh, you'll find details there about opening hours and access and, indeed, specifically where the the exhibition is and where the gallery is. Because, yes, as uh, Ace said, it's, in an, it's not its own building. It's off Collins Street mm. in another building. Mm. And two interesting female Melbourne artists, and I think if you're a collector, definitely one that you should look at, you know, purchasing. 
I know that NGV bought one, well, I was told by the mm-hmm. gallery. So it's definitely something that's significant and a really good example of collaboration, um, you know. And opening tonight in um, Fort Delta is two solo exhibitions, Ian Dean, a Perth-based artist with his exhibition The End of Legacy, and Laura Lee Newitt with Shelter Chooses You. They open tonight at Fort Delta, which is Shop 59 Capital Arcade, 113 Swanston Street. Mm. Um, and isn't it White Night this weekend? Are you talking to is, White Night it people? Is white night. It is White Night this weekend. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going. I'm not going either. <laughs> Maybe, having the night off. <laughs> Maybe I will... I, look, I might get up at 4am uh, and wander into the city then. I, uh, yeah. I think that's the way to go. Yeah. After Well after midnight is definitely... Right night. Oh, we shouldn't be seeing that on air. Now everybody's going to do no, that. No, go at 7pm. Take your pram. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> I went in last You're year... Evil. I went in last year at 10pm. Uh, at uh, yep. yep. Uh, and the crowds were so frightening that I yep. turned around and went back to Fitzroy okay. and <laughs> sat drinking coffee in Fitzroy for several more hours before I then ventured... And even and then, then I jittered... All I, the way I there. tiptoed around, around the, the edge. edge of the city yeah. to get to the NGV. So yeah. Yeah. I was so thankful Beware. for my various media passes last year yeah. because it was just madness, and the queues to get into some places were more than one city block. Mm. It was yeah. um, it was quite phenomenal. So if you are going to go into White Night, take Beware. our advice: go in after <laughs> one a.m. Oh, when yeah, it what? starts to quieten down. Art is on all year in Melbourne, people. <laughs> you just, just you take don't a big, have to wait just until take White a big Night. Stick to whack all the people out of the way. Oh, <laughs> tie. No, don't don't advocate. We are on. not advocating violence. Now there's going to be a crowd of people with sticks <laughs> blaming you. Just glowing sticks, don't <sighs> we, right? Uh, yeah, glow sticks. So uh, yeah, so White Night is on this weekend. Mm. Uh, any other exhibitions we quickly want to let oh. people know about? Yes, Five Walls Digital Reductive, uh, curated by Aaron Martin, Emma Langridge, uh, John Aslandis, Aslanidis, uh, Kabuto Fumikazu. Kylie Jenkins and Stephen Wickham at uh, Five Walls in the Trocadero building in Footscray. It's a cracker of a show. Fantastic painted, illustrative 2D work, but... um all on, all on that idea of nouveau abstraction and, and the digital element that comes into it or the way technology mm. has changed that landscape. Also, the um, Jenny Key installation mm. at, at Pieces of Eight looks amazing. I know that they've yep. turned that beautiful circular window into a sort of giant head with a big pair of glasses on it, like Jenny Key glasses. I just yep. saw a photo last night, so I'm keen to see what she's done for mm. that for the first time in years. So, I mean, the fashion festival is also on at the moment, isn't it? About to be on. <laughs> Who knows? Fashion. Fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen what I'm wearing? Anyway, let's move on. Uh, guys, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. A pleasure. <laughs> As always, we'll catch you in a fortnight's time. We're going to be talking Brahms coming up, specifically a Brahms marathon that's happening at the Hawthorne Arts Centre. But before we do, this is the Hired Guns from their album Golden Home, released in October last year, and a track called Small Beer. You're tuned to Smart Arts, Richard Watts here. And given that we were just being somewhat critical of White Knight, uh, we had another artist call in, hello, Lyndall Walker, um, pointing out that you can avoid the main crush of the city, which is very true. Get off at Jollymont and walk in. Uh, or, what I would recommend, there's a brand new northern hub for White Knight this year, based around the Melbourne Museum and the Royal Exhibition Buildings, plus Old Melbourne Jail. So there's a world music stage up at the uh, the museum, so 
you could check that out, see about seven different events for White Knight, and never have to venture into the main spine of the city where that crush can take place. Similarly, you can do that around the NGV and the Alexandra Gardens as well. So they're very definitely programming to pull people out from the crush that happened in the centre of the city in the last two years. And uh, if you like Lyndall Walker's art, you can see her work as part of the Hotham Street Ladies on the CGI building uh, on the corner of Little Burke and Swanson as part of White Knight Melbourne. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to be talking about a Brahms marathon that is happening at the Hawthorne Town Hall. But before we do, I thought we would hear a quick track from Twerps from their Range Anxiety album called Back to You. Thank you, Twerps, as I said, from their album Range Anxiety. Back to you, the name of that track. Now, classical music is not an art form I talk about a lot on this particular program. partially because we have a sister station, another community radio station, 3MBS, absolutely dedicated to classical music. Its vice chair is Chris Howlett, who is a cellist, amongst other things, and joins us in the studio now to talk about a Brahms marathon coming up at Hawthorne Town Hall. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. My very great pleasure. So when did you first pick up a... uh the instrument that you play, the cello. The cello. Um, I listened to my grandpa uh, on 3MBS. He used to play the, the drums because 3MBS also does jazz. And uh, when I was, was uh, as a young kid, and I used to sit up in bed at my nana's house and would listen to him play drums. And I thought that was very cool. So I went to Corfu Grammar to start with and at, in grade one decided I wanted to play the drums like Pa and was told I was not tall enough, which you're laughing for listeners out there. I'm now six foot five, and um, which was very ironic. Um, and the violin teacher said my hands were too big and so I was pushed over to the cello, literally. I, I look back now after doing a bit of teaching myself going, the new teacher needed some extra students, so uh, they pushed me over there. And I've never looked back. It's been fantastic. Now, the cello is an instrument for me that, it's so rich the sound that it creates i mean i love string instruments generally i have to say there's something about the 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 emotional quality of a string instrument that uh is really evocative but particularly the cello uh it's such a a a rich deep lustrous sound yeah absolutely um brahms himself said that the cello is the instrument that is the closest to the human voice um, and I think that's why so many people connect with it. I love playing it also because of the physicality of it. I mean, it's so big and it sits, it sits close to your body and, it's, and um, you know, it, it's a very f- physical experience. Yeah. Now, as well as being a cellist, you're a festival director and a producer as well as being on the board at MBS. So um, let's talk about the 2015 Brahms Marathon. Why have a marathon dedicated to a particular composer, for starters? Absolutely. Um, Similar to Triple R, we are based at 3MBS on subscription packages and rates and and donations. And uh, when we came onto the board about four years ago, we decided it was really important to have a main event throughout the year that was everything apart from radiothons, um, that we went out into the public and connected with musicians and with all our listenership. And uh, we decided that a marathon was going to be the way we'd do it. We started uh, three years ago um, with uh, performing all of the Beethoven piano sonatas in one day, which had never been done in the Southern Hemisphere. Last year we did the 
uh, Schubert Marathon, um, which was an expansion so that we didn't just have piano. Um, we could have everyone... You know, Melbourne's got such a chamber music and live music scene. And uh, from Schubert, we went to Brahms. So that's, that's, that's the progression of the, lifestyle, of, the, of the lifespan of the marathon. Now, when we're talking a marathon, how long does the event go for? We start at 9am and we finish at approximately 11pm. I promised my 3MBS text that uh, we'd be finished by 11pm. Um, uh, so it's seven concerts over the day, 50, over 50 musicians. And uh, we work on two-hour blocks uh, with enough break for everyone to run out and grab a quick coffee or a a muffin or a toilet break and all those sorts of things throughout the day. How many people stay for the entire marathon as opposed to dipping in and out? Yeah, of course. We have about 170 people already. Uh, so it's normally about 200 people that will sit there and they um, will get, they will come early, they'll grab their seat. And uh, Is it like going to the football of people bringing thermoses and picnic rugs and absolutely, cushions? Absolutely, absolutely. Particularly for the Beethoven the first year, which was at, uh, at Fed Square at, at the edge, um, at the Deacon Edge. People were so proud that they'd sit, sat in that one seat and heard all the Beethoven sonatas in one day and they had, they had a little basket underneath and they had a mug. And, um, but then again, we, we have a, a, a VIP package so that people come up to, into the cafe where all the musicians are hanging out and you know, have a glass of wine and they, they dip in and dip out. And there's also a lot of people that come just for one or two concerts. You know, I'll go see the 1pm and the 3pm and, and, you know, or... I've got something on in the afternoon, I'll come in the morning. Yeah, so that's the audience. What about the musicians? Uh, are any of the musicians doing the full marathon as well, or are they also going, right, we'll, I'll do these two, this two-hour block, somebody else will do that two-hour block? Yeah, no. I mean, the, the, the rehearsal period that would be required for that amount of time would be well beyond uh, what I could ask of the musicians, because all the musicians um, uh, volunteer themselves and donate their services to, to 3MBS and the fundraiser that it, the marathon is. Um, I I think a few people are playing in two or three items or three, two or three concerts worth, um, but most of us are only performing in one or two. And, um, but what's fantastic is that we, all the musicians, once they play, most of them stay on for the whole time and support the other musicians. It's, it's a great festival feel. Um, that festival notion, that notion of community being expressed is something that, that I think any community radio station is aware of and recognising. So it's great to celebrate that, as you say, not only with the listeners of MBS, but the Melbourne's classical musicians as well. So you've got members of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the Australian Chamber Orchestra, the Melbourne Chamber Orchestra, the Tin Alley String Quartet, all kind of contributing their time to, to perform this. Clearly, um, one of the reasons they're doing that is to support MBS. But I'm guessing one of the other reasons people are donating their time is because of their love of the music of Brahms. Tell us about Brahms as a composer and why he's such a significant figure. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it's very true uh, that you know people, when we when we uh, selecting the marathon every year, Brahms was something that a lot of the musicians were heading towards. Um, and suggesting Anne Frankenberg, who's the general manager of 3MBS, and I get emails for about four months leading up to our announcement suggesting which composer. Um, Brahms is loved by so many musicians um, because of his emotive music. It is music that really 
connects with people. It's a very humane style. He's known for his big works and his passionate symphonies um, and his passionate chamber works, but he also has a large array of music that is very inner and very personal. And for me, that's the music that I love to play that really connects with, with my instrument and with the person that I am. So if you would like to get along to the 2015 Brahms Marathon, uh, featuring 54 musicians, 40 masterworks, it goes for a full day, tickets from $20 at the recently refurbished Hawthorne Arts Centre. Uh, so the details, it's happening on Sunday the 22nd of February from 9am till 11pm, so we have been promised. Uh, and you can uh, find out more details at hawthornartcentre.com.au uh, where you can book for the 3MBS Brahms Marathon. Power on from White Nights and come straight to us. <laughs> Do a 24-hour stint. Uh, that would be a lot of coffee or possibly something else that we shouldn't get into. Uh, so, look, Chris, I hope it's a, a really fantastic uh, event and a really successful fundraiser. It sounds like a really significant event for MBS. It, it sure will be, and thanks so much for having me. My very great pleasure. Tune to Smart Arts, Richard Watts with you here. And just before those announcements, we heard Bell and Sebastian from Girls in Peacetime Want to Dance, their track today, This Army's for Peace, the last track on the album. And before that, we heard a track from Beirut from their album, Gulag Orchestra. And uh, that album's been out for quite a while now, but it's a lovely album nonetheless. Uh, Rhineland, the name of the track that I played from that album, released back in 2006. 23 minutes past 10 a.m. It's time for us to talk theatre now. Barking Spider Visual Theatre are a Melbourne company who are presenting two short works, a double bill, Psychopomp and Seething, at La Mama, in the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Drummond Street, Carlton. And as always with a La Mama show, just before we jump into the interview, my quick disclaimer and conflict of interest statement, I am on the Committee of Management of La Mama. I do not profit financially from my involvement with the company. <laughs> Therefore, I don't really think this is a conflict of interest to do an interview about a show that is on at the theatre. So, that said, we jump in and welcome to the studio Penelope Bartlow from Barking Spider Visual Theatre. Penelope, how are you going? Very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. And uh, the sound designer of the uh, show Psychopomp and Seething, Darius Kedros. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. So, where shall we begin? Now, let's kind of just give people a little bit of background about Barking Spider Visual Theatre as a company. You're a company who work in theatre, with communities, in schools, you create site-specific works, you've done works with museums, so uh, quite a broad-ranging company, but what unites all of those different works in different modes and modalities and, and, and spaces and audiences? I think story is essentially it. So whether story can come from a community, from a person, from an object, from you know someone's imagination, but it's drawing the drawing out of stories from many in various places, and then their interpretation. And so the interpretation always varies depending on where we are and how we're doing it. And uh, what's the story or stories that uh, Psychopomp and Seething are telling? Ah, well, um, <clears throat> to put it really bluntly or broadly or coarsely, um, Psychopomp is the death show and Seething is the sex show. <laughs> and that kind of came about because we did a... Um, a creative development showing with a short season out at Monash Uni Student Theatre last year um, and 
so that was the, of Psychopomp. And after that little season, uh, we had a few friends around for dinner. I said, okay, so that was the death show. What should we do next? And my friend Chris said, oh, sex. It's going to be the sex show, Penelope. I was like, okay. So that's sort of how they came to be a pair. Yeah. Okay. And it's a logical pairing, kind of sex and death. <laughs> um, I mean, look, David Walsh from <laughs> set up a whole museum inspired by those themes. So uh, I certainly think they're very appropriate for um, uh, an independent theatre production. But uh, Darius, uh, sex and death would also, I'm imagining, giving, give you as sound designer a lot to play with as well. I didn't have to do any sex noises. <laughs> Was that a shame? or? <laughs> I've had to do that before. That was pretty weird. Yeah. How does one do sex noises for for, the, for theatre? Uh, th- yeah. In terms of recording and creating them for for sound and composition. I mean, are you just literally going? <laughs> no, I didn't do any of the Ghibli bits. I just did. Um, I just. Did, but I did once have to make the sound of um, a, a, a punter with a prostitute scene, which was really dark. Actually, it was a very strange thing to do. <laughs> How dark does the sound get? Uh, the sound design get for Psychopomp, given that it is about death, and I mean, in traditional kind of terms, a Psychopomp is the spirit that is escorting Actually, the, all, the soul all, of the dead. All of the um, really in Psycho, uh, Psychopomp, the sound is all from the, the actors' voices, beautifully delivered, I have to say, and um, there's no microphones or anything involved in that one. It's just a very live and direct show. Um, yeah, which I kind of think leads on nicely to the actual format or the stage. How you, how you want to talk so a bit about that? Just to, go, to lead on from sound, the, there are four performers, and the way that Jason Lahane, the director, worked them was he cast them as cast them for their not only their acting ability, but also some of them had a, a music background. So it's the tonality of their voices. So we have a soprano, an alto, a tenor, and a bass. And he's treated it as a piece of music. So even though there's not actually any scored music, the language is written in such a way that it has a, a rhythm and a texture and a poetry that can be directed that way. And so Jace um, dragged in uh, Leah Scholes, who is the other... <laughs> another one of us, a barking spider um, artists, and she's a percussionist who's worked with the company since since 2006, and has also worked with um, MSO, Speak Percussion, places like that, and she helped kind of shape the piece with with the actors to get their voices really percussed. It is, it is, it is it's a very unusual delivery. Perhaps. It is, it really mm. is. Yeah. So by percussed you mean playing on the, the percussive notes and tones of the voice as they deliver the words. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. an interplay between the between the four actors um, and the way the script is written. It's, it bounces around. I don't want to say too much about it, but it, it bounces around. It's really yeah, good. And, yeah, and I mean the actors can't actually see each other. Each one is in a separate little cell, an isolated space on stage. Um uh, in terms of the staging, do you know about the stage? No, I don't, because I haven't uh, haven't had a chance to see the work yet, and I haven't heard too much about it. I shouldn't it. say too much about it, because no. it gives it away. Can we, mm, let's, let's, let's spoilers. Let's <laughs> yeah, talk about spoilers, let's, yeah. mo- let's move on and talk about seething instead. Now, I mean, because mm-hmm. you've written both works, but yeah. um, tell us a little bit more about seething first, and then perhaps about how they, I don't know, how they compare to one another in terms of tone and style. Hmm. Um, I wrote Psychopomp 
predominantly last year in when Jason and I were in Tasmania on a residency at uh, the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, and so he asked me to write Psychopomp there. Um, I had a deadline, so I wrote that. And then seething, he'd given me another deadline to write, and we were in um, Mexico, and well, actually in New York and Mexico, but I wasn't really writing in New York. And there are these things in um, a part of Mexico called cenotes, and a cenote is it translates as sinkhole. So you imagine you're in jungle and it's really flat. There's no mountain to be seen, yet the water supply for the whole area is in these aqua blue sinkholes. And we had the great fortune of being taken out into the jungle with this um, other couple and swimming in this thing, and you're in this cave with a shaft of light and... There's just the sound of water lapping and this beautiful blue colour. And it's incredibly peaceful and an absolute contrast to Mexico, the rest of it. And it was from that that the inspiration came for, for seething. So it's, I mean, it's tricky to write a play essentially about sex because the questions are, well, how do I do that? Um, uh, Especially given that um, one of the directives is usually show, don't tell. Yeah, well, it's... And also, I mean, I guess I'm not really interested in, in writing a show about sex just for sex's sake. It's why. And so... And then also kind of thinking, well, it, I don't want it to come from a, um, a specifically female perspective or a male perspective. I want it to be as universal po- as possible, but which is kind of impossible. So I guess it is more from a female perspective. Um, it's... Uh, how would you describe it, Darius? You've seen it? Um, unusual. <laughs> so I know, look, I know the director's note comments on the fact that um, there's a, uh, a sense of, of dream and poetry in both the works. Yeah. So that's the through line with the language. It's not... Uh, it's not a, actually, within each of the four stories in Psychopomp, there are little mini hero's arc journeys, as there is with Seething. But in order to find them, you'd feel it rather than read it straight away. It's, and that's the intention of the, the writing that you... And also the, the way Jason's directed it. The, we want our audiences to feel first and then maybe go home and think later. But it's, it's aimed, really, for to evoke feeling. And making audiences feel, I guess, Darius, is one of your skills, because that is something that sound design and composition does. It it enriches and adds to the emotive uh, aspect of production sometimes, because sound and music is something that that we do feel in a more direct and emotional way as opposed to other art forms. Yeah, but it's weird, because a lot of the time you find yourself trying to do stuff that doesn't do that too much, because otherwise it feels really cheesy. And many yeah, you yeah, don't want to get down that cinematic, kind of, and now you will feel scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bloody documentaries where they're just telling you what to think all the time. Dreadful. Darius is, like, I, I've only come into the rehearsals late because um, I just wanted to, I, I, when I used to be a performer, I really hate it when an, a writer comes in and starts telling the director what to do and the actors what to do. I think find that a bit annoying. So, yeah, I've stepped out, and coming in and hearing the sound, is, it's really evocative more than, as you've just said, it doesn't tell the story, but it, it's it a adds, foundation. Adds textures, yeah. sort of textures to the thing, yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun making those. Well, yeah. 
Now, in terms of uh, the company as a whole, Barking Spider work across art form boundaries. So, uh, as I know in the past, there's been uh, puppetry involved with productions as well as traditional theatre and, and various art form elements. For these two productions, how much is that cross art form approach informing and, and shaping and investing uh, and, and being presented within the show? Or shows <laughs> Just to get it straight, there's not a puppet in sight. <laughs> Because we are, um, puppetry is something that we are known for, but no, there's no. And we haven't done that much trad theatre. It's always, you know, seems to be mixed up with installation or this or that or the other. Um, this production is theatre theatre. I suppose its point of difference is how the audience enters the space and navigates the space. So it's for 20 people only each show, and the reason is that. When you arrive, you climb into a giant movable seating bank that only seats 20 people, and the big door's closed, and you get whizzed around in the space and delivered to each show. So there's an intimacy to where you're placed in relation to the um, performers. You're about, if you're in the front row, you'd be about a metre from the performers in both both shows. Hmm. Yeah. It is really good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whizzing around, yeah. It's really cool. It's really we good. sat there last night, and we were up the back, and we were just watching everyone going, oh, look at that, oh, oh wow. It's really, it's really fun. Some people are giggling, and some people are grabbing hold of each other can fit their life. <laughs> I know. It's good. Mm. Yeah, sounds great. So uh, the two shows, Psychopomp and Seething, are presented by Barking Spider Visual Theatre in association with Monash Uni Student Theatre, must, uh, at La Mama in the Carlton Courthouse, located at 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. Uh, the season is on from, uh, well, it uh, previewed last night, running through until the 1st of March, uh, and you can find out more details at lamama.com.au. You can also book online at lamama.com.au or by calling 9347-6142 if you'd like to book for Barking Spider Visual Theatre's Psychopomp and Seething, a play about death and a play about sex on At the Courthouse in Carlton. Sounds like fun. <laughs> You've both gone silent and giggling now. <laughs> we'll see you there. You will. Penelope, Darius, thank you very much for joining us here Thanks at Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Richard. Let's find out now about Love City 2 of Time and Country, an artist-run festival that is happening at Testing Grounds behind the Art Centre on the 27th of February. Joining us to tell us more, it's curator Ari Rain-Glory. Ari, good morning. Welcome to Triple R. Morning. So tell us a little bit more about Love City. This is the second of a trilogy of events that you're staging. Yeah, it is. Uh, so the the third one will happen next year. Um, basically, it started off last year. I did a quite a large exhibition that turned essentially into a festival uh, in a warehouse in the middle of Melbourne, uh, and it was a, it was a success. So I thought I'll do it two more times. Okay, glutton for punishment. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So you had about I think 300 people turn up to the first one last year. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's there's events that happen all through the night, so we had we just kept getting people filter through the door all night. And you had a mix of local, national and international artists across art forms? 
Yeah, so so the show, the festival is primarily from a visual art perspective. Um, I'm a visual artist, so that's, you know, what I'm interested in, but there is definitely filmmakers, performers... Uh, in there as well. It's an interesting way to present visual art outside of the the traditional exhibition category. So uh, so instead of going into a I don't know into a white cube or two, the notion of taking art outside, putting it somewhere where you can wander around, have a drink, see see a, a musician, see a, a, an installation piece off to your left, a, 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 a sculpture perhaps off to the right. Why do you want to make art or, or present art in this kind of context rather than within a gallery? Uh, for me, I think this kind of starts off uh, from a slight bit of a frustration from my point of view of showing an artist-run initiatives and galleries around Melbourne that after the opening night, which is the main event, that, you know, it's often pretty anticlimactic for an artist. Not much happens after that. So we just thought, let's, let's do away with the following three weeks and let's just make it about, about the opening night. And I think to combine, you know, playwrights, musicians and stuff in it as well, I think that's the future of contemporary art. I don't... I'm not really sure why these barriers do... why, why our communities are segregated. It certainly makes sense to we're, we're seeing across art forms the breaking down of boundaries and, and, and discrete art form categories. Um, I was talking to a, some a contemporary dancer yesterday who said it, that it absolutely makes sense for, for dance as a contemporary dance as an art form if it's seeking to evolve, if it's seeking to push itself to collaborate more with other artists so it kind of stops being dance as such and, and just becomes art. Is that kind of your idea for visual art as well, that it, we, we stop thinking in terms of boxes and just think about the act of creation rather than the form that it's made in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, what you just said is a really good example. I, I always see, uh, whenever I see contemporary dance, I get really inspired by it. Um, so the, there are narratives that fl- flow through both of the mediums, I think. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about... Uh, the, um, in terms of the, the approach to Love City 2 uh, with its uh, subtitle of Time and Country um, thematically this is what an exploration of time and place time and space, what's going on? Uh, yep, so, so I wanted to push it in, in more of a politically nuanced direction um, from the last festival. So each festival, the theme is going to expand outwardly. Um, so the first one was how we experience love in the city and, and what the politics of those are. Uh, the, this one is how we experience it on a national scale. And, of course, you can't talk about love and even hate as a derivative love without talking about politics. Um, so I really wanted to hone in on... On, and especially being on ideas of home and being Australian and the fact that if you are not Aboriginal that you are an immigrant to this country, no matter how long your family has been here, to hone in on those sorts of politics and how, how that ex- uh, affects our experience of time and place. Now, you said that you wanted to, to explore uh, this in a politically nuanced way. Nuance is not something, a word I necessarily <laughs> associate with <laughs> politics and political discourse. Yeah, well, I guess... It's because because it's art, you know. It is still art at the end of the day. There, there is there are politics involved, but I hope that the that the emotions that the artists work with come across more. You know, it's it's still not a protest. It still is art. Um, and having you know, it's a pretty strong subject matter. But not all of the, some of the artworks are a celebration of identity as well. You know, it's not all 
bad. And who are some of the artists who are participating? Uh, so we have over 20 artists. Uh, this time they've been sourced from locally and around Australia. So we have Amy Jo Jory, Arika Yulu, Ben Byrne, Ben Landu, Beth Sometimes, Kiara Scafidi, Clark Beaumont. Uh, we have a Dan and Marino Giovanni, which I'm really excited about. That's a father and son collaboration. Uh, Fiona Estelle Blanford, In My Heteroclitic Body, a band coming down from Sydney. Jake Prevell, Josephine Mead, Keith Deverell, Lyndall Irons, Marcus McKenzie, Michael Portway, Mira Istuigal, Nick Lee, Oscar Bretan, Telia Neville, and Tia Carter and Stephen Gillette in alphabetical order. Some of those artists I am very familiar with, such as uh, Telia Neville, for example, whose work I've been seeing for a while, and uh, also and Jake Prevell and a few of the others, others I've never heard of. So that's always kind of a delight, that mix of, uh, of kind of new ideas, familiar faces and names. Um, you call it an artist-run Festival, which is a, strikes me as, a, as an interesting... It's essentially part of the subtitle. Um, and so this means, I guess, that it's run by artists, for artists, and for, for uh, those people who are interested in contemporary art. As a subtext, that also then means that you are saying this is a, a festival that is not about a commercial imperative. That's right. And the, at this, the festival is also completely unfunded. Um, so it is very much about art and it's about... I'm not against arts funding or being supported by brands or council, but it's actually just about not asking anyone for permission. Apart from presumably the people who uh, look after testing grounds. Oh, yeah, yeah except for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, are the artists getting paid to participate? Uh, no, they're not, but I'm, I'm looking... I, I do very much obviously believe that artists should be paid, um, so yeah. Yeah, we're looking to that. But the fact that uh, there is no entry fee being charged, you are not making money out of this yourself, so it's not like it's a profit-making event uh, in which artists are not getting paid. No, and, and it's actually extremely common in Melbourne for for visual artists that you actually have to pay for an exhibition period and the artists um, they haven't been charged any fees to be in the festival either. Fantastic. If people want more information about Love City 2 of time and country you can go to www.lovecityfestival.com where you'll find details of all of the artists uh, and their practice uh, and the event itself is happening on the 27th of February at Testing Grounds behind the Art Centre so officially it's the uh, the block, uh, the kind of empty block at uh, 1 to 23 City Road, South Bank. Uh, it's happening from 6pm until 11pm. Entry is free. It's a wheelchair accessible event uh, yes. and it's uh, the, there is alcohol on sale as well, so it's a licensed event. What do you hope will be the outcome of this series of events that you're staging uh, each year? Do you hope that this will perhaps encourage more artists to to think outside the square, to think out the tr outside the traditional exhibition and performance space? Or what are, what are the kind of long-term outcomes are you hoping for? Um, I hope that a, the the main long-term outcome is I hope that it, that it helps to create a bit more of a discussion about how uh, artists can work together um, out, out, yeah, outside of the normal funding modes and outside of the normal artist-run initiative context um, and hopefully to create a, a deeper dialogue about how Australian artists in particular can start to make work to deal with our history and, and the politics of this country um, instead of you know, artists going overseas and coming back and coming back with quite a distinctly European style or something like that to start to really hone in on what it means to reconcile your Australian identity with being an Australian artist.
Yeah. Now, Ari, just before I let you go, you, you mentioned all of the artists who are participating. I don't think I heard your own name in there. Are you showing any of your own work? No, it's uh, too much work. <laughs> well, c- congratulations in, in that case on your modesty, because usually it's an opportunity for an artist to go, well, it's my own. I'm, I'm the curator, I'm the publisher, whatever. I'll chuck some of my own work in there as well. So um, congratulations on being remarkably ego-free in that regard as well. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, as I said, if people want more details about Love City 2 of Time and Country, which is happening on the 27th of Feb at Testing Grounds, jump online, www.lovecityfestival.com. Ari Ranglory, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Ah, ah, ah. You're tuned to Triple R. Richard Watts here, taking you through until midday today. Now... A festival that is very dear to my heart is the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, uh, earlier known as the Melbourne uh, Queer Film and Video Festival. Uh, it used to be the Melbourne Lesbian and Gay Film and Video Festival. It's gone through several names over the years, but whatever name it's had, it's always been one of my favourite Melbourne festivals. Uh, it's entering its 25th year, the 25th Melbourne Queer Film Festival, running from the 19th to the 30th of March. Its program was launched last night by festival director Lisa Daniel, who joins me in the studio. Now, Lisa, uh, congratulations to you and the festival team for getting it this far. Morning, Richard. Yes, it's uh, it's been quite a, an adventure, but here we are. Ticket selling day. How fantastic! It launched last night, went really well, and. Uh, Tickets are selling pretty well already. So, you know, if we have a secret, you know, members ticket selling for a couple of days before and that's going well as well. So, Great. Yeah. Now, it's my understanding that queer film festivals around the world, like queer bookshops, are in recession. They're, mm. they're dropping off yeah. because of the way that our... For bookshops, for example, it's because people don't go into brick-and-mortar bookshops so much yeah. anymore. They buy online. For film festivals, I assume it's also because of the change in our viewing habits. We watch films on iPads and on... L- portable devices or and we download well some people download films yeah. <laughs> yes don't get into that argument yeah. um yeah look we do look there's two things two major things i think with the the uh the fact that queer film festivals are struggling but also film festivals in general i think are finding it really tough but for queer film festivals it's twofold the one is what you've just said is that we you know we've changed the way we watch things we like to watch them at home uh, we like to watch them now we don't want to have to wait for the festival dates um you know, those sorts of things. I mean, I hate the thought of watching something on an iPad or an iPhone. I, I don't even like previewing stuff on my laptop, which is what filmmakers just are fine with now. I hate that. I'd rather watch it on a bigger screen. Uh, the other thing is, uh, particularly for Western countries, is there's a lot of questions about, you know, do we still need a dedicated niche queer film festival? Like, why do we need that? We've, we're close to equal marriage and we're close to equality and people don't really care anymore and... You know, what's the figure? 72% of people favour equal marriage in Australia, apparently. And, uh, but, you know, that, that to me is just such a sort of dull argument. I mean, of course we still need queer film festivals. We don't have equality, certainly in rural areas of the, of, of the world or in, in Western countries. Um, you know, there's still a high suicide rate. We don't have equal marriage. We're still a way off that. And besides, you know, why don't we need a queer film festival? What, you know, you wouldn't say that about St Kilda Film Festival or MIF or anything like that. Of course we need a queer film festival. It's entertaining and it's fun and educational and all that sort of stuff. So ironically, in the, in the western parts of the world where we're getting more equality, the festivals are finding it really tough because they're finding it hard to get uh, bums on seats and corporate sponsorship. But ironically, in places like Russia and places where it's difficult to be queer, those queer film festivals are actually burgeoning a bit more. Like, you know, they're sort of um, getting more popular and, you know, the Hong Kong Queer Film Festival is doing really well. And, you know, in those parts of the world where it is still really tough to be queer, 
Um, and it's, you know, it's actually illegal to even go to a queer film festival. They're doing quite well. So, but whereas, you know, we're all getting a bit slack and lazy and, and uh, just sort of taking things for granted to some extent, I think. Yeah. Now, uh, this is your 16th and final yes. festival. Yes. Uh, so congratulations on 16 years as well. That's Thank you. How, obviously the festival has changed in a number of ways yep. over those 16 years. Yep. Um, but it's, I would imagine that there's also a great number of positives that you've seen come oh, yeah. over those 16 years as well. Yep. Now, one of the changes is that it's now so much easier to make a film that anybody can and people can shoot something on their iPhone and send it in and it may be terrible and you unfortunately have to watch it. That's um, true. What are the positives? Uh, well, just going back to that thing, you know, it's, it's much easier to make a film. It's still really difficult to make a good film. It's very, very easy to make a bad film. Uh, the positives are, are kind of boring positives in, in a lot of ways. Like they're just things like you know freight and film uh, shipping and sort of environmental things. Like you know you're not sort of receiving 30 kilo crates of celluloid anymore. You, you're receiving a USB stick or a hard drive. So you know I kind of miss the romance of the celluloid and the giant case that looks like it's come up from the Titanic or something. But I don't miss the sore muscles and I don't miss the you know a thousand dollar freight fee for sending it to and from. Australia, whereas, you know, we can either download something and put it onto a hard drive, send it to our uh, venue. So that is, you know, that's been a fantastic thing in terms of uh, expense and just, you know, sort of green culture, you know, sort of um, not wasting so much, uh, you know, petrol and, you know, flights and all that sort of stuff. So that's been good. Uh, certainly easier. Uh, you know, we don't need as much office space. We used to have to have an office and, you know, s- and send the films over to the venues in a truck. Now it's literally just a couple of boxes of USB sticks. Uh, on the uh, downside of that is it's so easy to lose a USB stick, <laughs> but they're so easy to replace, so kind of cancels it out. Yeah. So, you know, they're the positive changes. Uh, you know, people, I think filmmakers are much more savvy about making film, and I think audiences are much more savvy about understanding film and understanding good film. Melbourne is such a great film festival city. There's so many film festivals on. Like, literally, there's, I don't think there's a week in Melbourne where there isn't some kind of film festival or film event. Um, so, you know, we're pretty... Um you know, we're pretty au fait with festivals and how they work and, you know, you might buy ten tickets and you'll hate two and think three are pretty good and think three are fantastic and the other two just leave you, leave you cold. But, you know, I think we're really, you know, we're a smart sort of arts city and, I, you know, I love that part of presenting a film festival here. Now, given that you've just said that so many films are now, they're on a USB stick, mm. they're not really films. They're not shown on no. film. They're not shown on cellular no. anymore. But I know you are showing a few films still on on a film format. One of those is Lawrence Johnson's yeah. short film that uh, was made 25 years ago. 25 so, years ago. So uh, celebrating that 25th anniversary with a film, yeah. a, a significant Australian short queer film yeah, that's now I mean, 25 years old. Yeah, so a 50-minute film, so I suppose it's a short feature or a long short. Um, an entry into Cannes. It was the only Australian entry into Cannes that year, and it's on 16mm. So both myself... I'm so excited to get a 16mm print. The, the staff at Acme are really excited to be actually touching spools and a bit of print and, you know, they're used to, used to sort of pressing buttons and all that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, so it's it's, uh, the, first, it's the only print we'll have this year. Last year was the first time we didn't have a 35mm print. So, yeah, those days are gone. Yeah, so the film is Night Out yeah. uh, and Lawrence Johnson has since gone on to make uh, a number of well-regarded features and documentaries yeah. and so forth. And Lawrence will be there actually with uh, Sean 
Sean Miller doing a Q&A uh, with Carsten and some of the crew. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they've aged and what's happened to, you know, with Lawrence's career since then. He's done some amazing things. And he's just going to talk about, you know, how, what he thinks has happened with queer cinema since, uh, you know, 25 years, years ago. ago. Now, it just occurs to me that I saw Night Out when it was first made. So that means, means I was at the very first oh, wow. Melbourne Queer Film well, Festival. Well, four or something. Yeah. <laughs> Flattery will get you almost <laughs> everywhere, Lisa. Um, and then I remember also uh, reprogramming Night Out when I, I was involved with the festival back yeah. in the day. I think yeah. we showed it at the 10th. Yeah, it was probably the 10th or the 9th, it, I think. Actually, it was before me, so it must have been about the 9th. Eighth, eighth or ninth, yeah, because yeah. I remember that we showed a package of of, of some of the best Australian yeah. short queer films. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, but so that's Night Out, one of the special presentations at this year's Queer Film Festival. There's also other events because uh, it's not just about the film; it's also about community. So there's uh, there's uh, a party. Uh, it's a girl thing. Uh, there's speed dating, which uh, has been uh, acclaimed as having a success rate greater than Tinder. Apparently, uh, yes. apparently, according to a previous <laughs> punter, and significantly in terms of the films, Lisa, there's. Uh, an even greater representation of foreign language queer cinema from around the world. Yeah, look, I've been trying to push that envelope for a long time. I was, when I first took the job on, I was pretty horrified, A, about the lack of foreign language queer cinema around, and B, the lack of acceptance of it here. So I've just sort of pushed them in, pushed them in, pushed them in. And I was pretty excited a few years ago, probably about six years ago, that Plan B, which was a, a South American film, won the Audience Choice Award for Best Film. And I thought, yes, I think I've actually achieved something now. Um, <laughs> Subsequent to that, I think I got a real pasting uh, about about the same time, maybe a few years before that, for screening a Korean film on opening night, which I thought was a fabulous film, but everybody hated. Well, not everybody hated, but there was a lot of backlash. For, a con- the conservative uh, backlash from people yeah, who for, don't you know, like subtitles. No, they don't like subtitles. Don't want to read a film. But uh, and this year I've just gone. Look, you know what? It's my last festival. You know, not that it's about me, but I just really want great quality cinema, and I couldn't ignore the films that were standouts. And so I've gone with two centerpiece films on opening night and. A, in a closing night. They're all foreign language films. Uh, the opening night film is from Brazil. It's called The Way He Looks. Uh, it's actually based on a short film we had in the program about six years ago about a, a young blind guy who's you know, sort of navigating his way through having this disability, being at high school, having overprotective parents and falling in love with one of his fellow male students. It's a beautiful story. It was Brazil's entry into the foreign language Oscar category. So it's a, you know, it's a beautifully made film and I just couldn't resist it and I thought that's obvious opening night for me. So It's interesting that we still haven't got away from the coming out narrative. Yeah, and there's a lot this year. You know, I was really surprised. Um, you know, I was sort of chatting to someone the other day about the different uh, themes that we've seen over the years, but the coming out theme has sort of ebbed and flowed and it's, and it's really kind of hit a, a crescendo this year, but really interesting stuff. Like, one of our centrepiece films is another, it's a lesbian coming out film called Anita's Last Cha-Cha from the Philippines. So when you're thinking that we're having, you know, films from places like Latin America and Asia and the Scandinavian countries, of course, you know, coming out is sort of fairly new to those sort of cultures, especially Asian countries and the Philippines. So, we're, you know, we're seeing great films from those areas now and they're sort of coming... It groups with that sort of coming-of-age story. So, and they're really fantastic. So you know, it's, it's interesting that we've come this far, and yet we're still telling those stories, but we're just doing it in such a great way, I couldn't resist them. Um, it, it makes perfect sense to me that we're still telling those stories mm. in some way, because they are a fundamental yeah. queer narrative in terms of self-identity. Yeah. And as you say, as new generations of filmmakers in new countries, where the notion of a queer identity is mm. kind of living a queer life is still a relatively new concept Absolutely. in some ways, yeah. uh, then it totally makes sense that they are mm. coming to terms with those stories.
if the coming out narrative is the, the, the not the narrative of choice, but one of the dominant narratives from some of these emergent queer filmmaking communities, what's the dominant narrative in in the UK, the USA, Canada, where we've seen so many queer films over the last 25 years? I think um, angst-ridden dating seems to be, you know, sort of <laughs> dating problems seem to be there, or dating comedies. You know, so we're, we're, you know, we've come out, we've done that. Uh, you know, we've come out to people at work, all our friends know that we're queer, then we're just having trouble keeping our relationships intact. That seems to be the overriding thing. Which is the same um, as any other drama, really. Exactly. Kind of, I mean, we're yeah. just mirroring what happens in the straight, you know, not, you know that, that kind of genre, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah a lot of that going on. Uh, let's talk about Australian features, because yeah. uh, this year I think you've got four Australian yeah. features, yep. which yep. is, um, that's a first. Yeah, I think the most we've had all at once was three a couple of years ago. And, you know, before that, <laughs> crickets, you know, sort of eight years between features and uh for this year all po- you know very very polished films um from sort of reasonably low budget to sort of pretty high budget stuff uh we've got the world, world premiere of a melbourne made film called the dream children by uh robert shooter robert shooter who's more more known for his theater work uh, i think it's his f- first feature it's his first feature and adapted from a a um a, a play that yes. he had previously directed yes yeah. so uh we're very excited about that he's excited about that that will definitely sell out uh interesting and amazing uh, narrative. I'm really interested to hear what people think about it. Uh, the other three are from Sydney. Uh, so Dean Francis, who has got a new film called Drown, and it's really nice to see his stuff because I've seen a lot of shorts from Dean over the years, and I think in my first festival I had one of his first shorts when he was, you know, 15 years old or something. Um, and, he, I mean, Dean is a fascinating filmmaker because mm. he's made some deliberately low-budget, trashy queer yes, cinema. Yes, he has. Uh, and then he's also made some really... Uh, Accomplished queer mm. shorts, yep. including one about five or six years ago about um, uh, sexual sexual assault and rape in a private boys' school yes. in Sydney, yep. which I only discovered years later was based on a real court, mm. on, a, on a real yep. case. Yep. So, and I just remember the emotional intensity of that film, yeah. of that short. So yeah. he's now in some ways revisiting that kind of yes. subject matter, sexual assault, queer identity, um, the closet in his film Drown, which is about surf culture, mm. machismo, violence. So it's a very Sydney film in that it's set on beaches and involving surfing competitions and so forth. Yes, there's a lot of, a lot of very handsome men uh, but in the, and a lot of machismo. Uh, I think it's a really good study of, of that kind of Sydney lifestyle and that sort of, um, I guess, that kind of weird sexuality that's in, in a sort of a men's sporting thing where it seems so macho and hetero but but at the same time very sort of you know kind of you know, sort of this gay sort of undercurrent seems quite powerful in it as well. So um, I'd like to see Dean make a comedy one day, but yeah, <laughs> he, he does uh, concentrate on the very sort of uh, hard-hitting stuff, but well, uh, yeah, amazing. I think his first feature was Roadkill, which was yeah, a kind of yeah. uh, 2010 horror movie. Yes, so yeah. he's uh, he, definitely the darker com- he's, yeah, components. He's, he's got he's that a, covered. But, it, but given that there's such a fine line between comedy and tragedy, maybe he can switch over into comedy. <laughs> um, you've got uh, a lesbian road movie from Sydney as well, I believe. Yeah, it's called All About E. So it's, that, that's been a fantastic journey, that film. Uh, it's 
been in the in the in the works for at least three or four years. Uh, they've struggled and struggled to get funding up. It's a po- beautiful polished film. It looks like a really expensive kind of film. You know, there's shots from planes and all that sort of stuff. Really well acted, well written. Uh, and we're so we're screening that film on the the last day of the festival. But before that, the day before, we're actually having a uh, a film and industry day called Queer Camera Action, which is uh, hosted by. Sean Miller, and we're having a number of uh, people talking on that panel from from the film industry. And Louise and Jay, who are the director and uh, producer of All About E, uh, we're basically using the film as a case study from very start to finish. So from the start, from the time that Louise and Jay come up with that idea to getting it on screen, to getting a distributor, uh, to getting it to the festival, and finishing it. And so it'll be really fascinating for anyone who's interested in uh, making films or, or who is perhaps at the um, I guess the short film stage of their career and looking to make features just to see how much extra effort and uh, money that it takes to actually push those ideas from just a bit of paper to something a bit more long form. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with Lisa Daniel, the director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, about uh, this year's festival program, which was just launched last night. It's the 25th Melbourne Queer Film Festival and Lisa's 16th and final uh, festival as director. We've talked about a range of uh, queer representation, but one, for me, one of the most interesting elements of queer cinema that we've seen really grow, particularly over the last 10 years, is uh, representations of of, uh, trans people's Mm. stories and lives on films and it seems like there's more trans content again in the festival this year and really strong polished trans yeah content. yeah we've we've look we've come such a long way in about eight years like eight years ago we it was really hard to get any trans stuff and when we did get it it was fairly consistently about the the surgery journey or the coming out or the you know and those things really matter still but now we're just seeing some really polished uh narratives that just happen to have trans characters in them the, probably the best one in the festival is drunk town's finest which is a fantastic u.s film that's been doing the festival rounds um look Look, I'm going to be bold and say that trans cinema has actually overtaken lesbian cinema in terms of quality and quantity and and just daringness and get, you know sort of getting out there and making great film. Lesbian film, for me, having watched a lot of it, has kind of stagnated. We're sort of covering the same bases. Um, with the exception of a few filmmakers here and there, Madeleine Olnick, who's got a film in the festival this year called The Foxy Merkins, she does some really fantastic left of field. She did uh, Codependent Lesbian Space Alien Six. She did, yeah. yeah. She she has a very wacky East Coast uh, New York sense of um, or sensibility. So you know, though, you know, people like her are few and far between. Uh, but trans filmmakers are doing some really really interesting things. So. Um, just really excited about what's coming up in, with with trans stuff over the next few years, and it's happened really quickly. It hasn't sort of dragged on over years. It's taken, you know, it's just sort of leapt and and jumped into the stratosphere straight away. Fantastic. The 25th Melbourne Queer Film Festival is running from the 19th until the 30th of March, uh, focused around Acme and the Screen Lounge there, so you can see films, get food, have a glass of wine. There'll be some entertainment. As I said, there'll be uh, speed dating and many other events there as well. Full program details at www.m mqff.com.au and tickets on sale now. Some of these films will sell out. So uh, get yourself a a festival membership perhaps so that you can uh, get tickets in advance early uh, in future years or jump online and book films. See them with friends. See them in a cinema. Don't watch them on your iPad at home. It's just more fun seeing films the way they're meant to be on a big screen in a dark room surrounded by friends, strangers and for some of us, members of our community. Lisa, um, 
what are you going to do now after the final festival, given well, that this is your yeah. your your you're moving on? Have you do you have concrete plans, or are you just going to collapse into Not a small really. heap? Not really. I don't really. I don't finish till the end of May, and I've promised that I will help mentor whoever steps into the role. So I'll have something to do with the festival. Uh, but yeah, I'm just going to take a break. I just sort of need some time off. I haven't had a summer for 16 years, so looking forward to doing that without having the festival hanging over my head. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm going out to Palm Island to do some work with the Cathy Freeman Foundation, just to do some volunteering for a couple of weeks. And uh, I don't know, I might hit a beach or something. But yeah, not n- really, no plans. So you know, cool. I'll send my CV around later this year. Uh, enjoy, relax, and congratulations on all the achievements because you have made uh, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival an internationally respected festival. So congratulations. Thank you, Rich. As I said, the 25th Melbourne Queer Film Festival tickets on sale now, running from the 19th to the 30th of March. MQFF.com.au for more details. Once again, Cerise Howard rides down from the dusty plains to join us for our fistful of celluloid segment to talk all things cinematical. Cerise, a very good morning to you. Very good morning. Right back at you, Richard. So, uh, what's going on in the world of film? Obviously, we've just heard that the Melbourne Queer Film Festival program has been launched, and uh, I suspect neither of us have had a chance to go through it in a lot of detail yet. So how about you and I have a conversation about it in a fortnight's time? I rather think we will go into some depth on that, definitely. Excellent. Look forward to it. Yeah. So what have you seen? What are you going to review for us today? Well, it's a bit of a hodgepodge. Um, uh, there's obviously it being Oscar season with all of that hoo-ha and hullabaloo happening on Sunday. Um, a lot of the big summer releases here were the, the main Oscar bait titles. So I'll have a bit of a look at a couple of those in passing and just a, a, a thought or two about some of the likelier uh, candidates to win um, gold. Uh, on Sunday, but first, let's, let's just be almost, not quite as far removed from the Oscars as possible, but a film opening next week in limited release that I'd like to give a shine a little bit of light onto, and it does uh, riff on the queer film theme that you've already uh, delved into heavily this week's um, in this week's show, especially speaking with Lisa Daniel just now, and I speak of a new French film called Eastern Boys from director Robin Campillo. It's his second film uh, as director, second feature, after The Returned in 2000. 2004, a French zombie flick that was um, sort of sort of at the forefront of the zombie renaissance, if you will, back then. And uh, but since then, he's written and edited a number of films for notable French director Laurent Cante, including Heading South and The Class. And his, um, I'm, I'm just sorry, excuse me, while I change microphones inconspicuously in the background without drawing attention to it. There's something uh, fuzzy about that. There microphone. is, yeah, it's sounding strange in my yeah. phones as well. Is that better? Yes, that's, that's much clearer. Excellent. So, uh, yes, uh, Robin Capillo's new film, uh, Eastern Boys, like some of the films he's written for Lawrence Conte, is very concerned with uh, race and class and Europe and. The, uh, the problems in this particular film concern matters of illegal immigration from Eastern to Western Europe and how smart young gangs of Eastern boys, let's say variously from uh, the, the previous, uh, the old Soviet bloc states, might uh, gang up on um, naive middle-aged men in uh, well-to-do Paris and um, take them for rubes. Um, so what we have here is uh, Olivier Rabaudin, who plays a Daniel, uh, a 40 or so something year old 
clearly well-to-do middle-class guy with a, a nice apartment somewhere, uh, who has been cruising around the Gare du Nord train station in Paris and has had his eye on a, a, an extraordinarily chiseled, cheekboned young lad named Marek, probably named Marek, played by Kirill Emelianov. Um, he is, it is a honey trap. Uh, Marek is what you might call a homme fatale. And uh, he is uh, setting, setting Daniel up for a bit of a surprise. Daniel is basically soliciting him. It's, it's clear that it's not just a, a little meet and greet, but there's going to be some sort of commercial transaction here. But Daniel is going to get rather more than he's bargained for because it won't just be Marek who turns up at his apartment. And it, this then sort of takes a, an interesting deviation into what you might sort of call the home invasion genre, uh, where there's not one Eastern boy, but many. So it's a homo invasion. A thing. homo invasion, very good. Yeah, it's a homo invasion film. And uh, look, it's not played for... It's, it laughs. Um, it's uh, actually really searing and searching um, look at uh, inequality across Europe, the supposedly united continent. But uh, it, it plays on any number of anxieties that the well-to-do have in the West uh, concerning the, uh, sure, the, the, the influx of immigrants, illegal or otherwise, from the rather harder-to-do East. Yeah, so playing on divisions of class, of culture, uh, of, of uh, not only class divides but also social and age divides uh, and also very much kind of, uh, touching on the, the topic of sex tourism as well. It is, and what is one of the really interesting things about this film is that it's uh, the homosexuality within it is just very matter-of-fact and, in fact, quite uh, steamy even. And um, it's a film where that isn't the issue at all, really, uh, which is really nice to see just foregrounded in this film uh, the, the, the issues it's really investigating are quite universal that of a, a, a lonelier older person um, hoping for some sort of connection and actually possibly finding it in spite of uh, the knowledge that he is being taken for a ride um, and then there's all these other issues in there, I mean there's a, a very charismatic gang boss played by uh, Daniel Vorobiov um, he's a very calculating uh, character, but a very charismatic performance. This guy's going to be someone to watch in years to come. He's probably only in his early 20s, uh, as is his character, but he's a, a very smart guy who seems entirely in his element a long way from home and, uh, and has basically seized the passports of all of his gangmates. So he's entirely in charge through intimidation and but also just a sheer weight of charisma. Now, now I've heard that the film falls apart a little bit in the third act. Would you uh, agree or disagree? Not, not that I recall. I, I, saw, I am actually relying upon my memory, having seen this at MIF some months ago, but I remember being really very taken by it. So I don't really... You, know, you could, you could uh, perhaps take issue with some uh, issues of plausibility conceivably, but I, I actually found the whole thing really quite convincing. And, uh, yeah, it, it does... It, look, people might uh, complain that it descends into melodrama. That's a common complaint that some uh, highbrow lofty types will throw at a film that they suddenly think has got a bit silly. But uh, I don't think it does anything of the sort at uh, the expense of any actual emotion or affect. I think it's actually a very affecting film, and I was very impressed by it. Um, so and it sounds like a pretty, uh, but certainly an intelligent feature. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's well shot. It feels uh, immediate, a bit claustrophobic in that apartment where poor Daniel's life is unravelling. And uh, it's, um, it's just actually just, I think, a very, very well-made film with 
a whole bunch of terrific performances and um, plenty to ponder over in these um, xenophobic times here in Australia, yeah, really. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's uh, the new film, Eastern Boys, uh, in limited release from next week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, one to get, definitely keep an eye out for. Yeah. So... Um, moving on from that, not exactly seamlessly, into uh, the, the world of blockbusters and, and strangely, a huge number of biopics. Uh, and, uh, th- this Sunday, the, the ceremony that, um, I wouldn't exactly say it stops the nation or stops the world, but it's, it's certainly the biggest profile film event broadcast uh, globally each year. This year to be hosted by Neil Patrick Harris, of whom I have high hopes for an entertaining ceremony. Uh, have you seen many of these films, Richard? Have you been, you, I know you've seen at least a couple. I've seen a couple of the Oscar-nominated films, but look, I'll be quite honest. I stopped paying attention and believing in the Oscars oh, uh, so, uh, after they failed to give Brokeback Mountain best film and gave it instead to a, a, a much weaker film, Crash, which has since kind of passed from cultural memory, whereas Brokeback Mountain remains a significant film. Um, so yes, the uh, the Academy caved in um, as it does every year, really. Yeah, they 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 it's. it's Look, it's a populist contest. It's not really about the best films, in my opinion. So, no. Well, the, the Academy is constituted of a lot of um, ageing, white, wealthy men, and uh, that is often, well, it is reflected in, annually. In, in their tastes. Yeah. yeah. So, look, I, I'm no longer a big Oscars devotee. I, I don't go to, the, to Oscars parties. I don't avoid spoilers. But it's always interesting to see what pup pops up. There's always a, a couple of, particularly in the foreign language category, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, obit, the obit reel every year is the one really uh, moving part of the ceremony, typically the one part where they don't let kitsch or backslapping uh, overwhelm proceedings and do typically get a pretty tasteful reminder of all of the extraordinary folks uh, to have passed in the year just gone. And when I say all, I'd, actually there's always omissions there as well. But, um, look, there's an interesting lineup of Best Picture films, and they're all ones that just... Uh, well, actually, they are all in cinemas presently. And I, I've just got uh, an inkling and a hope that uh, Boyhood, that least likely of Oscar candidates, might bring home the award for Best Picture, that film that was shot over umpteen years, somehow on the sly, with a couple of big star actors, or at least modestly big star actors. Um, but uh, a really extraordinary, you could almost say experimental film, you know, certainly very avant-garde and exceedingly low budget. I don't think Patricia Arquette got, barely even got paid. Um, and yet it's up there as a candidate alongside Clint Eastwood's gung-ho American Sniper and um, other, oh, so many biopics, so many biopics, strangely about uh, white men being clever <laughs> uh, or, or gun, gun crazy. Uh, and Birdman, the one other real loose cannon in the uh, in the selection um, for Best Picture, which is again an actually genuinely innovative film, but also uh, very much referring real life people. Um, the casting of Michael Keaton is surely pretty crucial to that film's success. He is Birdman, Batman, Birdman, um, and uh, and well, Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, also a little formally inventive, but also not if you've seen every other Wes Anderson film. <laughs> it's yet another cake of a film. Kind of fun, but, you know, come on, best picture, really, people? So perhaps, Richard, you'd rather we not dwell on all the actors, actresses' roles. I mean... You. Do you have a favourite uh, or a couple of favourites? I think uh, look, actually, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Michael Keaton win an actor in a leading role award. I wouldn't mind seeing Marion Cotillard for Two Days, One Night, though how the one foreign film gets to be nominated in there and not, let's say, hundreds of others be up for 
so, um, candidacy. I don't know. I really don't know how that works. There's a, oh, there's a number of very good performances, but there's nothing there that perhaps might resonate across the ages. I don't know that there are any um, masterpieces and, and masterclasses in acting amongst them all. Though J.K. Simmons in Whiplash, I'd like to see win actor in a supporting role because he was frankly terrifying, but made me strangely nostalgic for his role in a TV show I used to love, Oz, uh, in which he was similarly terrifying and a member of the Aryan Brotherhood rather than a jazz instructor. But strangely, they can have a lot in common, it would seem. <laughs> and I guess I'll just wind up by mentioning that um, there are a couple of films that have only just opened in the last week that are Oscar likely Oscar winners on some level or other Citizen Four and Selma, though Selma hugely controversial for not being nominated for as much as it might have been it being a, a, a biopic about Martin Luther King and particularly concerning his campaign to secure equal voting rights uh, through marching from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama in 1965 and look it is a tremendously worthy film but actually uh, I, strangely I might be in the minority on this but I found it kind of underwhelming because it's so much a biopic by numbers and hits all the right notes at the right point but really in a way I almost want some dirt to be dug up some drama some conflict it's all very feel good you even got Oprah Winfrey in an early scene and that just signals to me exactly what the sort of a film this will be it's all dreadfully dreadfully worthy and right on and righteous but uh, where's something to really sink my teeth into and, and something I didn't know you know yeah. Citizen Four on the other hand is terrifying because it tells me things I did know and didn't know, all of which are terrifying, all concerning Edward Snowden's uh, release of an extraordinary amount of data, metadata, and information about the National Security Agency and America's um, habits of just surveilling pretty well everything that goes on ever online. And, uh, you know, that's kind of an issue. And the, the doco from director Laura uh, Poitras, perhaps, um, well, hopefully win an Oscar because it's just important. It's so important because uh, it's so very here and now. And Snowden is a tremendously brave human being and um, and the irony of him having to seek asylum in Russia from the United States of America for surveillance uh, reasons for whistleblowing, uh, that irony is especially appealing to me. Okay. Well, I wish uh, you and everyone else who's a, an Oscar devotee happy viewing. Oh, I won't be watching it either. God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, for the Oscars fans, hope you have a great time. Uh, and uh, Cerise will catch you to talk more film in a fortnight's time. for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.